Everybody needs to be on Google in some form or fashion. So you need to be on Google and you need to be on Amazon. 80% of the searches are beginning on Amazon for product. So you have to be on these platforms. You have to be visible on them. And uh, it will cost you money to do that. Welcome back to the Upflip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Freeman. And today I'm talking to Christopher Ladadio, who founded Versa Products Incorporated in 2005. Versa is best known for their Versa Table Standing Desk. Their innovative furnishings are designed and manufactured in their California headquarters from sustainable U.S.-sourced materials and have made them a favorite in offices and schools across the country. In this episode, Christopher will share how he started his furniture business and grew it to a seven-figure monthly revenue. He'll also share how he's kept his furniture business thriving for 20 years, even when the pandemic changed how and where people worked and learned. Let's get into this conversation. Christopher, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So get, take us to the beginning here. When did you start Versa Products and what drew you to the educational furniture niche? Yeah, so we, well, we started Versa Desk in 2000, pretty much. And, you know, I, I started out in fitness equipment and then really wanted to move into something having to do with computers or education or something that was more scalable. And then I decided to just go ahead and try to make some training furniture for specifically the computer industry, not so much education, but the computer industry. Yeah. What was it that made you kind of want to make that shift into what what trends were you seeing that made you want to make that move? Microsoft was starting to pop off and they were heavily into you know, education and education software. And believe it or not, actually, you know, 2000, 2005, they were starting to do like these video type of, you know, recordings and stuff like that. We did have a couple customers that were using cameras and they were projecting them some other way. I don't I don't know how at that time, but they were doing re- pre-recorded training sessions. So we were doing computer tables with like the computer and holding the camera. And you know, oh, wow. today it's like really common everybody's got a camera, they do it, but back then in like 2005 it wasn't that popular and teachers would have like a tripod set up and some other stuff. And uh, it was pretty interesting. So we got started that way. And we felt that that was a really scalable market that along with medical products as well. Yeah. So so obviously, that was a, a big value difference in the beginning. But but what makes Versa products different today from other similar furniture? What what unique problems are you solving for your customers? Well, I think one of the, the best problems that we solve is that we do make the product here in the United States. And when you're supplying a school system, you know, several hundred tables, you know, they need parts, they need service, they need support. And it is really easy to go buy an import product that could be less expensive, but you're not going to be able to support it the same way. And in general, you know, institutions, they want to be able to get parts time and, you know, over and over. So we always has, we've always had a lifetime guarantee on our product. And then we have what we call like a free parts program. So if they're missing any parts, you can just get them from us. We overnight them to them. So, you know, that's the, the true unique proposition that's in general. And then we can also customize the product for the customer. So, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, sometimes they have their own requirements and we can meet those fairly quickly. What were the the startup costs for Versa products? What were some of the, the significant costs that if somebody's thinking about getting into furniture that they should be considering? Furniture can be a really expensive industry to get into with your cost of goods for your materials. But, you know, we started out more of a mail order company. You know, we had advertisements in Ziff Davis, like Computer PC Magazine. We kind of started out where we pretty much are taking the customer's money up front, then we're fulfilling the product. So that was kind of a way to to finance the company 
from the beginning when you're really small. But, you know, really the company started with like a hundred bucks. It was like, you know, not out of desperation, but I had been trying to, you know, get my fitness company working. And then I was transitioning over to doing computer furniture. But we really started out on like a mail order type basis, direct to consumer, where we take the transaction via credit card. If it was, you know, 200 units at, you know, 400 bucks, then you have, you know, a certain amount of money that you can work with to go buy your materials and start out. And, you know, necessarily recommend doing that, but that was how we did start. Was there any kind of additional financing that you had to to go find or was it all kind of that that first initial order financing to get get off the ground? Yeah, so it was a little rough. So I had some serious challenges financially when I started my fitness equipment brand and then was transitioning in. So I didn't really have great credit for the vendors to go ahead and give me credit. So it wasn't pretty much like anyone was beating down the door to give me a loan. So we did a lot of cash and carry with our vendors and it was almost entirely a cash business. And it was run like that. You know, a lot of our vendors were close by. We, we went and cash and carry product. So there was no true financing there. A, you just really want to make sure you have a margin to make some profit so that you can build that up. And you, truly the best way to do it is to be profitable or at least to attempt to be profitable from the beginning because it is very easy right now to take in money and say, yeah, we'll be profitable next year. We'll be profitable the year after. And, and then you have this funnel of money that continually has to keep your business going. So we were a little bit more profitable in the beginning, or at least conscientious of that. And then in the in the beginning, what kind of equipment were you using to actually make the furniture? That's kind of funny, because I made a lot of handmade tools. And when we first started out making tables, there's these big laminate sheets that you have to cut up. <clears throat> At the time, I didn't have any money to buy like a panel saw or a machine to cut it. And uh, basically, it's interesting, I took a ping pong table and I turned a skill saw upside down and I used a car garage door opener to rip cut these big sheets. And you couldn't cut it with a skill saw because you had to have like a bar and it was like, it was kind of crazy. So at one point, you know, we made this table and it was literally a garage door opener. It would cycle the, the skill saw that was upside down back and forth. And we used this thing for like, I don't know, probably like a, a year and then until we were able to buy like the real panel saw. So that was that was one of the interesting starts. Yeah, that is uh, that is a true DIY approach <laughs> there. It, it was. And it was, <laughs> I mean, it was amusing. And it, it was just like when it first worked, I was like, wow, shit, that worked, you know, and, and we used it and it was accurate too. And it was, it was good. So, and it, it was challenging. I had made a couple other machines as well, but that was one that stood out to me. Now, now, would you would you recommend somebody go the ping pong table skill saw route, or <laughs> what, what should they maybe be budgeting uh, equipment wise uh, at startup? So, what's interesting is that there's a couple companies out there. One is called Harbor Freight, and they sell like these really inexpensive import tools. And we would buy from them and just use that until it just literally broke or fell apart. And then there's another company called Grizzly that's mostly known for woodworking products and. What these two companies have done phenomenally well is really kind of take what's more of a commercial piece of equipment and sell it to the consumer at a really kind of a low price that allows them to get in and at least try that and use it. Because sometimes you're like, you don't even know if the machine is right for you or how are you going to use it or if it's really going to be worthwhile. And whatever machine you can buy out of Harbor Freight for $500, you can buy for $50,000 from a real you know manufacturer of that commercial equipment. So it can be really expensive to buy the wrong machine or not know what to do when you get it. So those are great 
avenues for trying things out like box and pan brakes and, and sheet metal shears, stuff like that. And can you talk us through the, the sort of evolution of your manufacturing process and to, to, what, a, to what it is today and, and kind of the, if you can give, also give us an overview of the, the costs to setting up that, that manufacturing facility? Yeah, so, so costs to set up a legitimate manufacturing facility, not just an assembly type of environment, but to really manufacture is, is quite expensive. And there's a lot of money that needs to be involved to get it started. You know, our, our evolution was is that we bought those low-end equipment. We would just run them until they literally fell apart and broke. And then what we would do is we would buy equipment at auction. And California being a place where there's not that much manufacturing anymore, there were a lot of auctions when I was starting out. And we would go there and bid on these machines that were, you know, they might be 10 or 15 years old. And we'd go bid on them and just buy them. You'd have to buy them cash and have your money ready at the auction. And that's how we would start out. It's a great way to start out, but it's also pretty difficult because a lot of these machines, they need maintenance, they need care. They might be running on a software program that's outdated. And um, it can cost you a lot of money to get them up and running. But we were doing a lot of metal fabrication. And some of the metal fabrication machinery doesn't really change year over year. So a lot of punch presses and shears, you know, they've been around 60, 75 years and, and they really haven't changed. So some of those machines are easy to buy, you know, used or old or at auction. And then what we do now is we only buy new machinery and we only buy new machinery that has service in the United States. And training. So a lot of the machines we do have are CNC. So they're driven off of specific software programs, which can be very expensive for the specific machine. So we have machines that are $850,000, you know, on average lasers are cost about 600 to $700,000. Um, and where we will buy new machinery. So the evolution is, you know, you use your leasing financial tools um, you'll depreciate that machinery. Your accountant should tell you how to do that. So, you know, as you're growing, those those things have those benefits. And where we are now, we have, you know, typically always about six or seven engineers that are on, on staff full time. And what we do is when we acquire a machine, you know, the engineers are evaluating it and then determining like, is this something we want to get into or a company we want to work with? And you are uh, an environmentally friendly manufacturer. Can you Can you talk about what that means and how that makes your process different? You know, it's a phrase that's played with a lot. At the end of the day, look, you know, I love hiking, I love nature, but I mean, you don't want to expose your employees to something that's dangerous or toxic. And then likewise, you don't want to sell a product that's toxic or dangerous. So those things are always super important to us. And then environmental friendly for us really came out of like not having a lot of cash on hand. So when we were just starting out, everything needed to be COD. You know, we weren't able to get net 30 for terms. So, you know, in some instances, we were seriously just in time where we're only picking vendors that are in L.A. within like 50 miles of our facility because we need to go out, pick it up and cash. You know, today it's a little easier because there's these MSDS sheets and it's a materials data safety sheet. And when you buy a material you know, every supplier is supposed to have that. And, and we we'll sometimes have to provide that, whether we're doing stuff for the government or for a hospital. And they're going to say, hey, look, we want your MSDS sheets. And these are basically sheets that tell you what's in it. So, of course, at one point, there was an issue with MDF board or laminate that had formaldehyde in it. So now that's something that's, you know, you have to check that and make sure. So environmentally friendly also is saving money. So it goes hand in hand with 
lean manufacturing, you know, and I would say like all the materials that we use are recycled to a certain degree. I think the metal is more than 60%. And then plastic products are probably at 60%, possibly, I don't know. And then corrugated as well. So packaging products. So I, I would say we're very efficient when it comes to that and environmentally friendly. We have a closed loop paint system as well. A quick note for our listeners, uh, if you're looking for more tips about starting a business, make sure you check out the Upflip blog where you'll find step-by-step guides and other helpful tips. You can find it at upflip.com slash blog. Uh, Christopher, kind of continuing down this line of environmentally friendly materials that you were that you were talking about, can you talk about how you source the materials for the furniture and share any advice you have on finding and choosing the right suppliers for a furniture business? Yeah. So Versa is truly a manufacturing company where we're taking, you know, we're taking raw sheets of metal and forming those into panels. And I think that a lot of people get assembly and manufacturing confused to a certain degree. And, you know, we don't buy a bunch of parts from China and then put them together in our factory. So a lot of times we were going to fabricate that connector and part, uh, connector part or the piece that we're going to do. So a lot of our stuff is proprietary to what we do. But if you're going to source materials for like furniture, we happen to do primarily office furniture. We did do mid-century furniture. So I have the experience in, you know, buying fabric and sewing fabric and foam and all these things. But uh, in general, we're taking raw material. We're going to source from, you know, reputable companies to begin with. And as you're sourcing your material, it's super important that you get with a supplier that's going to be very consistent with their tolerances and their quality. And whether it just happens to be fasteners or it's complete components, then you obviously don't want to get into bed with a supplier that's going to be really inconsistent with either supply or quality. I'd love to hear about the the different products you sell and in particularly what might be the most popular products in your catalog. And I'm I'm also curious how that may have shifted in the last few years as the the workplace and schools have changed. Yeah, so great question. What's really happening, which is exciting, is standing desks are becoming really popular and people have adopted them for all the right reasons. I'm, I'm really excited every year to see that the standing desk market is growing and is continuing to grow. Um, we're probably best known for our Versa desk converters, the desk that sits, you know, it sits on top of the, the table. That's probably the most front facing product we have. And what we've done is designed an electric lift one as opposed to a manual one. And we did a fantastic job with it. We designed it, we patented it here in Los Angeles. And we had nothing but success with that product and it runs great. What I am seeing in it, in its industry, it's interesting because the first people that were doing standing desks were in the hospitals. And it was this system called a PAC system. And the doctors would use this. It was basically, they do like an MRI and they would look at the slides and they would do it 24 hours a day. So they wanted these tables that could hold these really heavy monitors. And we started doing those, I think like in, in probably like 2007, maybe 2006. And those were the first standing tables. And and mainstream people didn't really get into standing tables until much later. So, And they really became hugely popular over the last five years and a lot more affordable. And the tables we had to make back then, they needed to hold like 400 and 600 pounds and 800 pounds because each monitor at the time was 150 to 200 pounds. So it really, it had to, it had to be like, you know, it was like fitness equipment. It had to hold a lot of weight. That's where we've seen the most activity happening in office furniture. And in education, the evolution is, is that, you know, the big CPU holder boxes, you know, are going away. And then 
the monitors integrating everything. You're getting touch screens. But in general, that that industry hasn't evolved like tremendously. You know, the monitors got lighter and bigger, and that's that's pretty much go, what's going on there. How did the pandemic affect your business? Like, what did, especially maybe from an operations standpoint, what adjustments did you need to make to to meet the challenges of the time? Yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic was a was a pretty good kick in the ass for us. At the time, we were doing more B two B, so we were more B to you know we were doing commercial office furniture. We were doing mostly for the schools, you know, and schools and hospitals closed, and that was a major part of our revenue. Uh, so that was really challenging. And one of my my VP of manufacturing's made as the pandemic was happening, you know, people are like, are we coming to work? Are we not going to work? And he just quickly made like a hygiene station, you know, something to hold the gloves and hold the solution. And we dropped that on Amazon. And then we had made like the acrylic sneeze guards, like, you know, like the guard that you saw up everywhere. And we transitioned really quickly as a team, like everybody got together and I helped design like a, a screen guard as well. And we packaged it up and it was great. It was, it was, you know, really challenging and a little scary at the time. And it was great seeing the team jump into action. And we had started selling these sneeze guards out of acrylic and we had three lasers and we had an older laser that was able to cut the acrylic without any toxic fumes or anything. And you can't cut plexiglass. It's got to be acrylic. And we have like dust collectors and all that. So it worked out really well. And we ran this machine like 24-7. And at the time when everybody wanted these sneeze guards, we were selling them on Amazon. We were doing something like eighty dollars to $100,000 a day, you know, selling those. It was amazing. We had it packaged up. And that was a great moment. But it was also a really big shift for what we're doing. It wasn't really crazy. But, you know, you're changing your manufacturing line and your team. And, and that is challenging. But it was exciting. Yeah. So, th- so I mean, that's obviously an example of finding products that meet the moment, but when not kind of responding to a global pandemic, what is the idea generation process for new products? How does it work internally from that initial idea phase? Yeah. Well, I think right now, you know, there, there's always been this giant debate about open workspace versus enclosed, you know, somebody working in an office versus, you know, an open work environment. And then obviously with the pandemic, you have people going in two different directions right now where some people are like, you know, I'm wearing a mask and don't don't be in my space. And then, you know, other people are like, screw it. I don't care. Uh, open workspace. So what we're doing right now is that we have a really cool, like kind of a glass, you know, cube that we're doing right now, like a little pod that we're going to be offering. And that should be interesting because it will bring back that whole like enclosed space, but do it in a cool way. And, you know, for us, the process is, is, you know, if someone has an idea, and typically we don't even care if it comes from the factory floor or it comes from sales and marketing, you know, we'll listen to it. And we also listen to our customers to find out what they want. And then we'll make a product based on, you know, where we think the trends are going or what the customer wants. But I'm pretty excited to go ahead and launch this new cubicle that's primarily glass and it's going to look really cool when we're finished. Yeah, can you talk about the the verification process of, you know, okay, we great, we've got this idea, we think it's a great idea. How does it go from we think it's a great idea to yes, green light, put it into production? Yeah, so I think we're a little more less traditional than other companies and larger companies where they have, you know, the R&D people, what are they called? They're like um they're people that like try out your product. I can't think of the name of them right now, but they're like oh, basically the, like, like, like beta testers, yeah. Yeah, they're like you know, a lot of unemployed people that are like, okay, you give them a product and then they're going to figure it out. And I would always tell my team, like, I'm like, really? I'm like, this is like an actor that's out of work, 
but they don't even have the money to buy the product, but they're going to evaluate it. So I was always kind of a little indifferent, didn't really like that path. And what we traditionally had always did was we'd make a sample and then put it up on our website. And generally what would happen is that you can see traffic to that product. You know, are people going to it and not buying it? You know, and I would say, hey, if they're going to it and they're not buying to it, you know, maybe our price is wrong. And, you know, you have chat. So one of the best ways to really figure out is like, you know, be in the category that somebody's willing to buy it. They're willing to put their money in and, and buy your product. And I think that that's the best customer. And the best way to do that is online. And even if it's with Amazon, you know, you can put the product up with a longer lead time to see what happens. But uh, in general, you want to be communicating with the customer to see how they like it, what's happening. And for us, we can do that quite quickly. You know, we'll come up with a design. Um, some of our engineers and team members that have been in the factory floor for a while, they can easily put together something from a sketch. And then generally, what we do is we'll so- draw it into SolidWorks, render it, whereas other companies might do their entire drawing in SolidWorks. They'll design it, they'll render it, they'll have conversations, they'll talk to their mom, their dad, whatever, you know, the board of directors. Whereas what we really want to do is just make that product, get the look and feel, get the, you know, the fit of it. And then, you know, either shoot it with real photography or render it after we've drawn it in SolidWorks and then put it up on the web. And that's pretty much our process. But there's a lot more that goes to it. So launching the product and putting it into production. What kind of conversations, how are you facilitating conversations with customers, both on new products and perhaps just on on existing products to to develop and further improve them? To me, it's always exciting because there are so many smart consumers out there and you know, you'll get a laugh every so often when somebody puts a table together, you know, upside down or do something crazy that you didn't even think was possible. But but in general, like the consumer is is really well educated. And a lot of times we are selling to other engineers. And what we do and what we're doing right now is that we have a, a, a bunch of young engineers in our team. And we said, hey, why don't we put your name in the assembly instructions or an RFQ code where they can just email you directly. So what we're doing right now is we have some engineers that say, hey, look, you know, I'll talk to the customer. I'll, I'll find out what's going on. And we do have a questionnaire and we also have those available for them to text us. And they can text an engineer directly if they want. And sometimes it's filtered through customer service. But, you know, we want to talk to those people directly. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes we sell an engineer and they'll be like, yeah, you should make this change or do this. And they're like valid changes. And that's always fun to interact with the customer like that. And a lot of sales that you have are coming from repeat customers. One, I mean, that that sort of constant open line of communication seems like one way to ensure a positive customer experience. What other things are you doing to ensure people want to come back and buy more? Yeah, so what I always tell people is how you handle the customer with your last sale is going to determine whether you're going to get another sale. And, you know, this is an area in which we're always trying to improve and every company needs to take it super serious. You know, the customer has to have a good buying experience. So it's kind of like going to a restaurant. If you go to a restaurant that's great ambiance and great service, well, you're, you're willing to let the quality of the food go a little bit. But if you don't have the, you know, both of those going on, then you're not going to come back. And customers the same way. If you take really good care with a, with a customer and you get it to them on time and you're attentive and communicating with them, then, you know, they're going to be less likely to, to give you a bad review or give you a hard time or walk away from you. And again, you know, in a reality where there's so many distributors, there's so many people buying a product from, you know, China or Vietnam. And, you know, some people are buying products directly from China, putting them on Amazon. 
and then selling them to the customer. Well, Amazon has their own customer service platform that they don't want the supplier or the vendor talking directly to the customer. So there's a lot of these third-party platforms where they don't want anyone really talking to the customer. And a lot of times, you know, you can't get that connection with the customer. So, you know, trying to put something into the assembly instructions is really important. But in general, you know, the communication with the customer is key in how we try to really keep the customer you know, to come back to us is just communicating with them through the process is really important and listening to them. A lot of your customers include several educational institutions, Fortune 500 companies. Can you talk us through any advice you might have for a business owner to to start connecting with and landing contracts with companies of that scale? Yeah, so I think one of the ways if you want to do business with the government, you know, you should get a GSA contract and that's like agreed pricing. And, you know, I haven't been on YouTube, but there's so much great information on YouTube. I would say, you know, consult YouTube to see how to get that GSA schedule or pricing set up. And that's not necessarily guaranteed that they'll buy from you. What happens is that you have that pricing and then you're approved vendor with the government. And then they'll, they can go ahead and, you know, people within the government, government's huge. So a lot of times, you know, even the people in the government want to buy a product, don't know where to go. So they'll Google it. And if you have a GSA, you know, contract number, then they can, they can do that. So that's one way to do it. And then what a lot of people don't realize is that these really large companies like Bank of America, you know, they have buying groups. So Bank of America used to be managed like their facilities by LaSalle Lang, and they would have to buy some of their, you know, furniture through them. And so there's a lot of like on the larger companies, if you're trying to get these larger companies, then you need to look for the buying group that they buy from. And that's, that's one way to do that. I'm not an expert in sales, but those are some of the directions you would go in if you really wanted to get those large customers, uh, direct to direct to consumer customers like that. So this brings us to a section of the show that we call our fan blitz questions. So for for each of the following questions, I'd love a 10 to 30 second answer from you. But also these questions come from our YouTube community. So if you're out there listening and you want to pose questions to future podcast guests, go find Upflip on YouTube, join the community and you can pose questions there. All right, here we go. Let's dive in. Brit Indian is asking, how do you recruit and retain good staff? Currently, right now, we use ZipRecruiter, and then we do have a couple of recruiters. But my best winner is a professor that was at USC, and he brings me the USC engineering candidates, and they're awesome. So that's my, my secret right there with engineers. I love it. Uh, Bilal Arif is asking, what's the process of taking... Uh, something from an idea to a demo to a finished product, which, which we sort of talked about earlier. So maybe just a, a quick encapsulation of that. Yeah. So I think best thing to do is have a picture of something that's similar to what you want and, you know, explain the functionality to, to your engineer or your team very clearly and say, this is what I want. But start with a picture. The picture is phenomenal. The people, if they're in the industry, they're going to clearly know how that person made that or what needs to happen and then communicate the key features that you want. And then you can start from there. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it, but we got 10 or 30 seconds. That's, that's the quick one. That's a quick version. Basad Youssef is asking, how did you find those first clients? First clients came through on our front facing, I believe it was our mail order. You know, those first customers came in buying stuff direct to consumer. What's interesting is people don't realize you'll get corporate orders from direct to consumer customers. So if that direct to consumer customer likes your product, they're very likely to bring it to their work or recommend it to their work or their community or whoever they're with. 
And one last question from the community. Uh, if something happens to you, what happens to the business? So the business should be fine. And I, you know, I want to, I want to think they'll miss me if something happens to me, but they'll probably be able to run the company pretty well. And each person knows what they're supposed to do. And managers are supposed to, you know, create their own SOPs, standard operating procedures. But in general, the company can run without me. Those are our fan blitz questions. Again, those come from the YouTube community, Upflip on YouTube. Uh, check it out. Join the community. Post questions to future podcast guests. Uh, Christopher, for a few more questions from me. Um, I know you mentioned you 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 aren't a, a sales expert by any means, but is there anything that you can share of some of your in-house sales strategies that have worked well for you? Yeah, well, I think you know, in something like education furniture, if you have a commodity-driven item. It's a challenge, right? And if you're making it in the United States or you're making a premium product, you need to charge more. It's the bottom line. You know, so you may be 30% or 35% more than the lowest item or 40%. It could be a, a huge range. And when I talk to customers, which I still love selling customers, if I can get on the phone and talk to them, I will, is I would just tell them, I say, hey, look, if you're if you want a professional table, then buy ours. If you're trying to make a statement to your classroom or your college. You know, we're going to provide you a great product. We're going to support it. But if your budget's not there, then, you know, start with staples or start with a lower end table. And then when you're ready, come see us. And it wasn't a matter of like trying to shame the customer into like buying it or, you know, extending their budget. But, you know, that's one way to do it. And because you're always going to be in this challenge of it's so easy to just lower your price. And that's what you see a lot of young entrepreneurs or people just starting out make the mistake of just going to the lowest price to try and get the business. And then that impacts their operation, you know, further down the line, you really need to find a reason and a way to charge more, especially when you're starting out. How about, uh, I, I want to ask about marketing here um, and what type of advertising you're finding the, the best return on investment for, for you as a furniture company? Wow. That, you know, this is a great question and we could talk hours about that. You know, I mean, everybody, needs to be on Google in some form or fashion. So you need to be on Google and you need to be on Amazon. So even if you don't intend to really do the majority of your business, I think, you know, 80% of the searches are beginning on Amazon for product. And, you know, obviously not everybody's selling a product, you know, some people have a service, but the PPC or paid per click on Google has changed so many times. It's an evolving, just constantly changing platform, but you need to show up. And I always tell people like, you need to show up for the party. And if you're not, then, you know, you're not going to interact. Nothing's going to happen. So you have to be on these platforms. You have to be visible on them. And uh, it will cost you money to do that. How often are you reevaluating your, your marketing plan? I would say on a weekly basis, for sure. And it's amazing how things can get off track and things can change on the website or they're not there when they need to be there. But our, our team is constantly monitoring their campaigns, seeing what the customer wants, what are the images. And th this is on a daily and weekly basis that you have to monitor what's going on, even in a, a fairly stagnant product category, like, you know, computer tables or standing desks. So, I mean, if you're in fashion, I can't even imagine, you know, how quickly you got to be moving and seeing what's happening. But we're, we're looking at it every day. And you, you you made mention of your of your website. I'd love to to hear your thoughts on what the the main things that a furniture company should have on the website are. Well, I got a, a really fair amount of experience, you know, over the last twenty years, and also did mid century furniture, like you know, casual lifestyle furniture, where we had fabrics and customers picking those, and you know, they want the ability to configure the product, and that is the most 
important thing is that the customer can configure the product they want. They need to be able to see that pricing changing in real time. And I'm not even saying that we're doing that as experts either, but that's exactly what needs to happen. They need to be able to configure it, customize it to what their liking is. And they need to see the pricing has to be transparent and upfront. How much does physical location matter for a furniture manufacturer? And what are what are some of the main factors that that you considered when you were, you know, moving into your current space? Yeah. So I think, you know, traditional furniture manufacturing like sofas, love seats, this type of stuff, you know, it is important your location. I mean, if you're gonna sell twenty thousand dollar sofas, you need to be on Beverly Boulevard and Beverly Hills. If you're gonna sell a lesser quality product or less expensive product, then you're okay being somewhere else. For us, we are a manufacturer. We don't really have any customers coming down to our factory, even though they're welcome to. But in general, a lot of times what companies like ours do is that they'll use another showroom or customer that's willing to let people come in and look at the product. But I, I think it's very specific to the product you're selling is where you need to be. And for us, it's just not that challenging because people aren't that excited about you know, office furniture sometimes. So they don't really care. They'll, they'll buy it and check it out and determine whether they want it or not. How big is the team today? How many employees does Versa have and, and how is it distributed across departments? So we have about 120 employees and I, you know, I think maybe 25 are administrative. I'm not sure, but we have a paint department. We have a wood department. We have a metal department, laser cutting, packaging, warehouse. So it adds up quickly, you know, you have a lot of different departments, a lot of people working, a lot of material being worked throughout the system. So it's very easy to you know, have a, a really big payroll very quickly when you're manufacturing. And it's a much different than being a distributor or a reseller distributor where you're buying the product and just sending it out, you know, doing some marketing and sending it out to the customer. So we do have quite a few people on the floor. Yeah, and, and and I'm curious how you lead them. What's your leadership style? You said you know you you hope they would they would miss you if you were gone, but the, the, <laughs> the company would probably yeah. be fine. But how do you, how do you lead them? And what are, in your opinion, the key traits of an effective leader? I'm a more hands-on leader, and I like you know I'd rather be on the factory floor. I like to be designing. I don't want to be doing administrative stuff, or, you know, accounting or human resources or any of that stuff. I just really don't care for that. But you know, look, we we you always want to be empowering your team leaders and on a manufacturing floor you know have you have team leads where somebody's leading maybe three or four people and then you have a manager in that department and then you have a you know plant foreman or production foreman and fortunately for me I've had you know the same team with me for many years so there's you know there's five or six main team members and they do a great job and they bring in great team members as well and we've been very fortunate cuz a lot of the referrals on the factory floor are coming from those team members. So they'll bring them in and there's an expectation when they do come to the company. So I'm very, very fortunate. And we do have a culture of people working. You know, we don't have people that are trying to go to the bathroom or they're trying to work slow. You know, they want to get their work done and they want to be, you know, appreciated likewise. But the, the structure is, you know, team lead. And then you're constantly developing those team leads or lower level managers uh, to develop into higher level managers. When you were describing how the company kind of responded to the pandemic, it it did strike me that it felt like the team was both empowered to to dream and have ideas, um, and also committed to the company in a in a really really great way. So I'm curious about that company culture 
Was that something that you intentionally crafted or was it developed organically as the company grew? You know, I don't get on the floor directly because I have managers, so I don't want to undermine them. But, you know, I used to tell the team when, you know, the company was starting out, I said, if there's a fire, I said, everybody grabs the fire extinguisher. I go, nobody leaves until the fire's out. And I would tell them like, you know, no one's running out if the building's on fire, grab a fire extinguisher and put it out, you know, and that's kind of the can do attitude. And, you know, these are things you got to be really conscientious of when you are hiring people is that are you this company where people are going to have to wear different hats? Or are you like a Northrop Grumman or Hughes Aircraft or one of these companies that, you know, everything's structured and we are a hands-on company. When you come in, you're going to have to do more than one thing. You're going to have to figure things out on your own. And that's who we are. That's what type of company we are. We're very entrepreneurial. So the team knows that. And then when you know when you do have those moments that machines are breaking or things are happening, your team's going to step up, and you don't have to be there leading them. You know, and they're going to figure it out on their own, which they do. One of the big factors in Versus growth has been its ability to find and fill those various voids in the marketplace. Can you share some strategies or tools that you use to identify underserved niches? Well, I think from a consumer standpoint, you always want to be putting yourself in the consumer's shoes. And that's where a lot of the things come up or, you know, what a lot of times is happening is that when you are a manufacturer, you know, like everyone's telling you, hey, you should make this, you know, and like my mom will tell me that my mom will call me like, you should make these, you know, and you're like, okay, great. You know, that has nothing to do with what we're doing. But but when you do get into the field, people are going to tell you that or they're going to be like, you know, we wanted to buy these, but they were so expensive. And you know, you have these situations that arise all the time. And I would tell my sales team, you know, even if you get a weird bid from the government or from another company, you know, like, let's look at it because if there's a margin in it, we can do it. But I think the underserved part is really obvious when you do have, you know, demand for a product and it's cost prohibitive for people to buy it or that product is not functioning, you know, in the marketplace the way it should. And you're going to get that, you know, the review system on places like Amazon are phenomenal where people are giving you just this absolutely amazing information. So it's, you know, it's a really great way to R&D a product, but also find out where the voids are. Because if you just look at a category on Amazon, you can kind of see what the customer wants and what they're buying. What software or other tools is the company using to manage both products and inventory as well as workflow? And and how do those help you run run the business? Yeah, so really challenging, you know, for a growing company at any size. And there's a few softwares I definitely recommend. We're not a huge company, but we're a larger company. So we use SAP, which is a manufacturing and accounting software, which is a very cumbersome, very difficult program to really get up and running with bills of materials. Um, We use SolidWorks as all of our drawings and engineering. And then there's a few miscellaneous programs that we'll send to the machines. But SolidWorks is our main design software. And then for CRM, customer management relationship software, we had written our own in about 2000 and we've been on it for literally, you know, 17, 18 years. And I'm pulling the company off of that onto HubSpot. So my three happy softwares and things that people should be using is use Shopify as your e-commerce platform. Uh, we use big commerce, but I recommend Shopify over that. I recommend QuickBooks and HubSpot. And I'm super thrilled with HubSpot. I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on CRMs and trying to implement new ones. We obviously have the one we wrote um, that was written for the company that we still use. But you know, those are my three favorite softwares. And as far as SolidWorks goes, it depends on the product you're making. So maybe AutoCAD has a product that's better. 
but SolidWorks is what we use. And then how do, how do you use automation in the business? So that's a, a great term to use. It, it throws around in a lot of different companies and environments, and people think they're losing their jobs over robots. But you know, automation is really important, and it, and it has to be scaled. Like with Versa and like with Tesla, I think when they did their number three line, they had tried to fully automate it, and it was a disaster in the beginning. And you have similar you know, operations that happen too in your company. When we're looking at automation, like you can set up several machines together, like, hey, we're going to laser cut this material, and then we're going to send it to an automatic panel bender. And then from there, there's going to be a part picker. And we do have those machines. And then sometimes, you know, trying to create that automation where, you know, you want to, they call it lights out automation, where, you know, you can leave a machine running overnight unattended. That's not really the case. And, you know, automation comes in these smaller segments and automation might be as much as getting a roller table where your team is passing the product down to the next person to assemble it. So I recommend automation is something that you do in small chapters. And then as you can pull those smaller automation pieces together, you do that. But to start out and say, hey, look, we're going to produce this automated line will probably be the most expensive and frustrating venture in your entire life that you'll ever embark on. And you won't produce anything at the end of the day. So, you know, I, I recommend trying to create these automated process at that station and department, and then trying to pull those together in some type of format. You've been in business for 20 plus years at this point. How has the furniture industry changed in that time? Well, I think office furniture has stayed relatively the same. I think that you know, when it comes to lifestyles, furniture, like sofas, love seats, that industry has had a massive change where people are no longer going to the store. They're comfortable buying a sofa online. They're, they're comfortable buying a credenza or a large piece of furniture, you know, online. So I think that that industry did change a lot. I feel that the industry of office furniture in medical and training has stayed relatively the same. It hasn't evolved a lot as far as the buyer's um, government purchasing is still relatively the same. Some of the younger buyers don't care whether they have an agreement or a contract. They're still going to go online and search you. And that's why it's really important to still have that front-facing customer interface <clears throat> no matter what your product is and w- no matter what reps you have. Because especially those younger buyers, they're going to do the research. They're not going to take face value for the rep that walked in the door. So I think in, in that respect, it has changed. What about the the next 20 years? How do you see the industry changing in that time? And, and particularly for, for someone who's start, who maybe is starting out today, are there any trends or shifts in the market that they should be aware of? Wow, next 20 years, that's going to be exciting. So I think you know, you're going to see technology just integrated into almost every product. And I think when it comes to like, you know, standing desks and that, you're going to see the monitor integrated in. I know at different times we tried to like, you know, build a, a unit with the computer in it. Consumers kind of not ready for that, but I think they're going to come around. And I think in the next 20 years, you might see things where, you know, you can use furniture and send it back. But I think in general, you know, it is a tangible product. It is made with, you know, raw materials. And, you know, I don't think that we'll see like materials become that much lighter in the future. But I do think that as far as technology furniture goes, it's going to be exciting to really see what happens. And I think that you know, the younger buyers are going to be more receptive to trying some new and interesting things that are integrated with computers and other, you know, drawing interfaces as well. What's keeping you up at night as a business owner? Well, sales is always something that keeps you up at night. And then going through something like the pandemic where pricing changed dramatically, 
you know, we were, you know, buying material, metal material, and then it went up 300% in a year and then petroleum products. So the things that keep you up at night are obviously these expenses that are running, you know, you have high payroll, you have, you know, rents and mortgages, you have insurance that just continually goes up. So, you know, those are the things that will keep you up at night and you have to manage those and you have to manage, you know, what you focus on for your business. Otherwise it'll drive you crazy. You know, even if you're a single business owner or you're part of a board of directors, you really got to, you know, choose your battles and figure out what, what you want to keep you up at night. But you know, running that whole show is pretty challenging. And I think, you know, even the team members within the company, you know, they, they have their challenging evenings as well. But, you know, managing expenses is really the big challenge. If there was one thing that you hope people take away from this interview, what would it be? Wow, that's a, there's so many things. I always say, like, have amazing accounting from day one. And, and that's the most important thing is that I don't, I don't care whether you just made five units or you made 100 really understand your accounting and account for every little penny and every little part. Because when you do grow, that will become a huge issue. And if you can at least understand from a financial standpoint, it doesn't have to be good and you could be losing money. But if you don't understand what your true cost is, then it'll be a long, hard road for you to actually you know, run any type of an organization. Last question here. What's your favorite business book and why? Wow. So many of them. Well, I should have, I did my homework on that one. I think the best book that sticks out to me. And I don't remember the the author, but it was Negotiating with Difficult People. And I forget the author's name. That was one book that was amazing. Then there was another one, I think that was called The 360 Degree Manager. And um, if you guys look those both up, I think you'll find out where to get them. And they were both written quite a while ago. And the, the Negotiating with Difficult People was a fantastic book that gives you some very basic tidbits of, you know, how to negotiate. And it's not about like always winning. It's about, you know, coming to this common ground and and it translates to a lot of things. And then the 360 degree manager was pretty much saying, hey, you can manage a company from any position in the company. And those are important. And those are my two kind of favorite ones that stick out. That is going to do it for this episode of the Upflip podcast. If you're out there wanting more insights into the furniture industry, check out our YouTube channel where we have an interview with Blacktail Studio. If you'd rather have business tips delivered straight to your inbox, you can sign up for our newsletters by clicking the link in the resources section below. Christopher Lodato of Versa Products, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Alex. I really enjoyed it. 